Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Q&A. I'm Jay Nordlinger, and this podcast is brought to you by X-Chair for Exceptional Sitting. I'll have more to say about our sponsor later in the program. Our guest today is Harvey Mansfield, Harvey C. Mansfield, Jr., the esteemed academic. He's a professor of government at Harvard, a scholar of political philosophy in particular. He has taught hundreds of students, I should probably say thousands, and they are all better for the experience. Harvey Mansfield, good to see you. Well, thanks. Good of you to have me on. Harvey, have you ever calculated how many students you've taught, just roughly speaking? No, I haven't. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not, uh, I'm not a popular teacher, as I, I get a consistent but sort of medium uh, enrollment in my courses. But I'm nothing like Michael Sandel, who does get hundreds and uh, a thousand students uh, sometimes when he teaches his course. So, uh, well, I, I can tell you, you have a very devoted and appreciative alumni association, so to speak, that there are Mansfieldians all over this land. All right. That's good of them. Right. <laughs> but my courses are a little bit difficult, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, partly uh, that's the way I am, and partly uh, by intention. Uh -huh. but, yeah. So I try to uh, give a challenge and to give a lecture which may not be understood altogether right away. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's sort of my doctrine of, yeah. of lecturing. Are you still a harder, greater than your peers? Not much. Uh, I've had to surrender to uh, great inflation. And uh, obvious reason, uh, I don't want to punish my students for taking my course. Yeah. And since nowadays, uh, the result of great inflation is that the, a single bad grade, bad grade meaning even an A minus, <laughs> can, uh, can knock you off the top rating and uh, have a you know, a, a certain influence on your career. So, um, where, whereas one would think that uh, the advantage of great inflation is that it makes students don't worry that don't worry not to worry so much about grades. Mm -hmm. but it's just the opposite hmm. because uh, you can't stand a single departure from perfection. So everything yes. has to be strategized. And there are very few students who can just get straight A's without uh, uh, being strategic about it. Yeah. Uh, just uh, can, can get straight A's just by going ahead and doing whatever they wish. So, so, uh, so, so, it's, so it's difficult. And the, and the very top uh, sort of range of graduates uh, is a, is a, a ra rather large number, but it's a tiny sliver of that large number. So there are many people who almost have straight A's all the mm -hmm. way to Harvard. That's amazing. Mm. <laughs> and uh, by many, I don't know how many, what, what percent, but uh, you know, something like 10% or something close to that. 
uh, and and there's just tiny gradations um, that separate one from another. That separates, say, the best scholarships like a Rhodes Scholarship, something like that, uh, from those who do very do well or even do very well, but don't quite get the top. So there's a number of students who are really ambitious. And I, I don't think anyone comes to Harvard without ambition. Somehow that's, they're selected for that. And, and they seem to have that. And they want it to make, as I say, they want to have an impact, that ugly word they use. And, <laughs> and even worse, impactful. Uh, uh, they, want, they want to live a kind of very disturbed life where they're always having an, an impact like Adolf Hitler on other people. Yeah. <laughs> when uh, when I think of impacted, I think of dentistry. Yes, um, that's pretty bad too. <laughs> yeah, Harvey, I I think of the the famous sobriquet Harvey C minus mm-hmm. man, and it leads me to ask the question. Um, I think I, I once asked the famous James Q Wilson, "What does Q stand for?" Quinn, he said, so, something not very often said. Or um, what does C stand for? Claflin which is a corruption of McLaughlin. And oh. It was my grandmother's uh, maiden name. So Good to know. It's Claf, Claflin. Uh, C-L-A-F-L-I-N? That's it. Huh. Huh. Well, um, Harvey Fall is approaching, and uh, you'll have your new classes. I wonder, um, do you look forward to a new school year? Do, do you... Do your yes, hands tingle uh, a bit? Is it? Is it? Yes, I it, do. It, I always tingle a little. That's apprehension. It's looking forward, which is a bit apprehensive. <laughs> you wonder how well you will do and uh, who you will get and what it will be like. Yeah. And that's always the case in, uh, in the first week of classes. And of course, it's students who feel the same thing going into your class. So there is a kind of tenseness in the atmosphere especially the first class. And uh, it used to be at Harvard that they had a shopping period for the first week or so when a professor was really on trial to keep those who came to his course uh, early on to see what it was like. And they would walk out on you in the, after 10 minutes if they decided this is something they don't want and they'd go to some other class and come in late. And so this is something which you had to stand and take and tolerate as a professor. That that that, that, that would bother me as yeah. a professor. I, I would, I'm afraid it'd be hard for me not to be insulted. Uh, well, they've just changed it and abolished this shopping week. I, I kind of like the shopping week. I haven't got used to it uh, because it, it, uh, it taught students to look at an array of courses and to look, go to more, maybe twice as many as you're actually going to end up taking. And this gives them a greater experience of what's to offer and, uh, and uh, really forces them to make a judgment, which is based on experience, a slight experience of, of what the course is like in the first day, but still uh, a telling one in many cases. But they, Are, they, they've, uh, they've abolished this shopping rate. Did you ever think it should be the other way around, that a professor should be able to shop for students? Of course, it should be the other way around. <laughs> in <a> democracy. <laughs> yeah. Harvey, I think um, not long ago on this program, we had uh, Akhil Reed Amar, the Yale law prof. And uh, he was talking about his life and, and he arrived at Yale as a freshman, then went to law school there. And he had one year away for a clerkship uh, with a judge, and then he was on the Yale faculty. And so he has spent his life on the Yale campus and has prized every minute, he said. <laughs> and uh, another guest on this program was Jeffrey Stone, the Chicago law prof, free speech man. Uh, he didn't go to Chicago uh, for college, but he went for law school. And I think with the exception of, again, a clerkship, he's been there, he never wanted to leave. I wonder when you arrived at Harvard, as a freshman, did you think this is the place for me lifelong? 
or was it kind of an accident? Uh, it was in between. Mm. I, I sort of slid into it. Mm. You know? I never really decided that. Of course, one never decides I'm going to stay here the rest of my life. No. But, um, but I, I did at the, I, I did stay at Harvard every chance I got. So, uh, with uh, two exceptions, one two years in the army, where I was drafted. That was uh, uh, some, something I did willingly, but I'm still compelled. And second, my first uh, job at uh, at the University of California, Berkeley. So I spent two years there. But I left knowing that I probably would would be able to return to Harvard, mm -hmm. which I did. Did you enjoy the Berkeley experience, Harvey? Uh, I did. It's a mm -hmm. lovely place to be, living there. Mm. Uh, you've got a weekend when you can choose to go to the mountains or the desert or the ocean. And that, mm -hmm. that was, uh, yeah, so I, I, I did all three things and that was a new experience. And, uh, and it was kind of an exciting place. Uh, it was a co-ed, of, of course, at that time, which was... Uh, which Harvard was not. Hmm. So I walked into the classroom with all these beautiful women in the first row. That, well, that was, must have been pleasant. Yes, it was, but it was a new experience too. Mm -hmm. yeah. but, uh, 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 they didn't particularly care for me. So I, I left, uh, you could say, in a cloud of dust after two years. Well, to hell with them, I say. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm glad you landed so well. Yeah. Um, Here's a, I have a question that it might be oddly worded. I'll just go ahead. Is it, is it kind of a privilege uh, to be known as the, the one conservative in the government department, or is it more of a burden? Um, or maybe some combination. And because yeah. you, 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 so many people of my persuasion, we just value you. So <laughs> at the same time, I think that maybe, Mr. Mansfield would like a little help now and then. I yes, it would be nice to have a little help. And I do have a little help. Uh, I'm the, you could say, the, the only really outspoken conservatives, conservative at Harvard. Uh, but other, others are conservative, and some of them are outspoken, but not on behalf of conservatism. Mm -hmm. Someone like uh, Steven Pinker, so he's sort of conservative but so, so some people don't like to appeal appear as a, a partisan or a member of a party or with a label um but uh, and others uh, are conservative but just uh, keep their politics quiet mm -hmm. uh, not exactly in the closet but certainly uh, practicing self-censorship mm. so there are a few but damn few Harvey, on this business of conservatism, uh, I find myself using the words liberal and conservative a lot less than I did because people, to me, seem so confused about what they mean. Um, do, do you find yourself more and more having to pause to say what conservatism is or to find out what the other guy's understanding of conservatism is before proceeding in conversation? Uh, yes. Um. <laughs> Um, let me say, I, I am not um, primarily conservative. Um, let, and, uh, let me explain that a little. Sure. Take your I, time. I, I consider conservatism to be within liberalism in the extended sense. Um, and the extended sense comes from, especially John Locke in the 17th century, and uh, others, Adam Smith, David Hume, and so on, and the 18th, Edmund Burke. Um, the extended sense, which includes both the people today who are called liberals and those who are co called conservatives. And the extended sense means a society based on rights, based on individual rights. And you can see that, um, for example, in the, in the abortion issue, that conservatives speak of the right to life and liberals speak of the right to choose. Those are two rights. 
So both sides are somehow within the same general um, mindset of ex extended liberalism, liberalism with a small L. So, um, but I think there is something beyond this liberalism with a small L, even in the extended sense. And that's what one gets from studying the ancients, Plato and Aristotle and Xenophon, all the thinkers who were in the, especially in the tradition of Socrates, the Socratic tradition of political philosophy. And those people um, belong or live in what you might call the land of virtue, in which the um, highest good for a human being is to live a virtuous life. And liberalism, even extended liberalism, doesn't... Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. I don't know very much at all about this topic the land of virtue, it takes it for granted. It speaks of your right, and you have a right whether you exercise it virtuously or not. Hmm. Because liberalism stands or falls on the distinction between having a right, which is it is the business of government to secure, and exercising a right, which is your business. So it's the there that means government is limited. It is limited to securing rights, not exercising them. So, mm -hmm. and, and the trouble is that it's sometimes hard to make that distinction. So <laughs> people can say, well, you can't exercise your right unless somebody has secured it. This is, uh, for example, a, uh, the argument made for affirmative action. That it's that Lyndon Johnson made. It's it's unfair to think that everybody's starting at the same uh, line in the race, because some people have a head start, and um, the educated ones or the wealthy ones. And you, ha and in order to make it fair to, to exercise your right, you have to give others uh, a certain advantage. You have to, so to speak, exercise it for them. And so government goes beyond securing into the realm of exercising. Mm. And that's what Democrats or liberals with a capital L, mm. generally speaking, want to do. But they don't speak of virtue, neither conservatives nor liberals. Conservatives speak of it or imply it more than liberals do. But uh, they don't speak of it directly because they the word conservative means keeping saving mm. respecting so you're you're that in that way you're sort of stuck with the status quo in a, in a way that you're uh, not with uh, with virtue so it, it it becomes uh difficult for conservatives to know what to do in the face of the liberalism of capital L liberals. Do you uh, oppose them um, 100%, in which case you want to go back to some situation earlier, and that's called going back, or do you oppose them moderately and say, you're going too fast, hmm. you need hmm. to slow down. Hmm. So, so conservatives are always in this, in this um, um, dilemma of going back versus going slow. If you go back, then you disrupt everything. Going back would be a kind of revolution. Mm. And conservatives are opposed to revolution. See? But then if you go slow, then 
as Newt Gingrich said, you end up uh, um, financing the welfare state. Yes, he he <laughs> and, he he, he uh, damned Bob Dole, or I think Jack Kemp. Someone damned Bob Dole as the tax collector for the welfare state. Yes, yes, that's it. That's it uh -huh. exactly. Yeah. So you end up uh, just gradually surrendering to uh, um, to the status to the liberals mm -hmm. instead of uh, opposing them the way they deserve to be opposed. Mm. So that's so that's what. And I don't think that, by the way, that I don't think that any conservative can be either one or the other consistently, and never, never, uh, never some kind of mix, because. Uh, uh, you, you, you're always going to want to win an election, in which case go slow and don't risk uh, disrupting everything. And you're always going to get tired of just surrendering. Hmm. So in which case you, want, you do want to go back and uh, elect somebody or try to elect somebody who will make a big reform. So, so so this is why I I don't put um, conservatism at the top of my list, uh, my or my thoughts, or or the way I say it sometimes is my gods live higher in the sky than, <laughs> than conservatism. <laughs> yeah, but still, having said all that, at the end of it, I still say I don't mind being known as a conservative. That's better than being known as a virtuous virtue. Virtue claimer and virtue speaker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you remind me of a couple of things, well, so many things in, in what you've said, but one is that uh, George Will says the most important word in the Declaration of Independence is secure. Government exists to secure these rights. And I might like different words such as pursuit of happiness, but the idea of securing rights is so very important. And you also make me think of a homely statement, uh, almost a kindergarten statement, which is fine by me. Uh, uh, don't confuse what you got a right to do with what's right to do. That's right. But um, on the other hand, uh, it's <laughs> hard to say to yourself, I've got a right uh, and I don't care how I use it. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you do care how you use it. And that means you are concerned with uh, how it, what, what, what is right to do. Harvey, mm -hmm. for many, many years, I've spoken and, and written of right versus left. And I, I was pretty sure I knew what right and left were. And I'm becoming ever more cloudy on the subject. Uh, take Putin. What is he? Is he left? He's a ex-KGB colonel. Is he right? It seems to me he's just a tyrant. And more and more, I find myself, maybe in a Mansfieldian way, speaking of liberalism versus illiberalism. Uh, that makes sense to me, whereas yeah. I'm losing my grasp on left and right. And I wonder what you have to say about this. Oh, well, certainly illiberalism lives on both the left and the right at the extremes. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, no, left and right have a kind of permanent existence, I think, under liberalism. Because liberalism, with its rights, always is going. The individual rights is always going to seem a little bit selfish. <laughs> right to do something that means you have a right to put yourself first, and, and so there are always going to be people who object to that, and they want you to put common first. And the extreme of that is communism. You would say when, when, uh, and individual rights are totally submerged. In, uh, in the common good. And then there's another people, a group of people who are going to look at individual rights and say, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the right to life? That is uh, self-preservation? That's the life of a coward. That is somebody who never takes a risk, always, and he, he lives uh, a mediocre life concerned with comfort and pleasure and never anything above that. And so that person is always going to say it's, it's ignoble. And that is the basis for the right 
And the philosopher of the left is Marx and the philosopher of the right is Nietzsche. This is, this is how I end my course on modern political philosophy with a study of those two thinkers. They, they two, uh, and they, they're, they're going to have, a, I think, a, a permanent existence. Maybe not word for word, for sure, but uh, still, um, in, in general, those two possibilities are still going to, going to exist. And so, I, so I would, I would say, but then it's interesting to see that um, Nietzsche seems to have greater power than Marx, and that. And that's because Marxism is based on economic arguments, which are obsolete and and been disproven, don't work. So Marxism borrows from Nietzsche the idea of the will to power and the, the struggle, the communist party spoke of the struggle for peace. Mm. They didn't really want peace. What they wanted was struggle. That's mm. sort of a little bit. So there's... Uh, there's a lot of, say, of, of a certain amount of Nazism in communism, especially today. It's what's called consciousness. So Marx always thought that consciousness came out of economics. But, and so consciousness is something of secondary importance. Economics is the thing you worry about. And that, but uh, the Marxists have come to believe, together with Nietzsche, that consciousness is more important, or the will to power, and so uh, there, there, there is again, there's a kind of hidden embrace uh, between the left and the right. Hmm. And uh, so Putin, yes, he's uh, he's a leftover from a communist regime, but he makes an appeal to uh, a lot of Russian nationalism, Russian greatness. That is not in Marx, greatness of some country. Mm. No, it's uh, it's the uh, proletariat as a as a universal class. That, that, uh, I, Harvey, I, I I can't remember the dates of Marx and Nietzsche, but I wonder if um, would they have enjoyed talking with each other, or would they have hated each other too much? Uh, yeah, it doesn't seem that Nietzsche ever read. Mark Nietzsche wrote in the 1880s, and Marx wrote in the 18 uh, uh, well 40, 1848's Communist Manifesto. 1867 is uh, is uh, Capital, the first volume of Das Kapital. So uh, Marx comes before Nietzsche, but not very much before. Mm. They both come after Hegel, but that's a long story, <laughs> and, and that's for a, a, a political philosophy lecture. <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking with Professor Harvey Mansfield, uh, tuition-free. I'm Jay Nordlinger doing Q&A, back mm. after this word from our sponsor, X-Chair. Many of us spend more time every day in our office chair than in our car or bed. That's why it's so important to invest in the right chair. We want to spend those hours with the right level of support and comfort to get the most out of our day. X-Chair will make your time at your desk more productive, yes, but it also may prove your favorite place to sit for any reason. Not only does X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar, or DVL, offer the ultimate customized support, X-Chair can also give you a massage, or heat up or cool down, for real. And now, thanks to X-Chair's new FS360 armrests, you can adjust your armrest to the perfect position just for you. All these unique X-Chair features help the hours at your desk fly by in complete comfort. People love their X-Chairs, and for very good reasons. Go to xchairqa.com now. That's the letter xchairqa.com. Or call 1-844-4X-Chair for $100 off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. xchairqa.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Q&A. I'm Jay Nordlinger, speaking with Harvey C. Mansfield, Jr., Professor of Government at Harvard. Um, 
it seems to me, Harvey, that when I was coming of age, everyone liked the word and the concept of democracy. It was a sweet word, a, a virtuous word. More and more, I find that that people are allergic to the word and idea of democracy. They say, no, 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 we're a republic. And I just wonder whether we can have some elementary lessons. You know, I think of your man Tocqueville and democracy in America. And I think about how Reagan inspired the founding of the National Endowment for Democracy. You know, this was thought to be a very good thing. And as I say more and more, I find that people are skittish about democracy. Would you would you mind helping us with some basic terms? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, people grow skittish about democracy when they lose an election. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and I, Fair enough. Fair uh, enough. They don't like that, that, that a majority turned against them. But, um, uh, well, let, let's look at, uh, at Tocqueville. But before that, look at the Federalist Number 10. That's the most... Uh, famous Federalist paper written by James Madison, and in it he makes a distinction between democracy and republic. And he says uh, democracy is something like an ancient democracy where every, every citizen participated directly. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. In the government. And a, re a republic, though, is representative. And that means that you don't participate directly, but you elect somebody who does. So there's a kind of layer of representatives between you and the government. And the duty of these representatives is to get together and uh, to make laws, um, but not by directly interpreting what the people said, but by Here's the two words he used, refining and enlarging what the people believe or say in their elections. So nowadays, when we use the term democracy, we mean representative democracy and not something like this direct um, ancient democracy. But um, in doing so, we forget that... Um, there is um, a difference between um, the most radical definition of democracy and what we have. In fact, we even think that democracy is defined by having elections. But election means choosing. And choosing means finding something that is better than something else. Mm. So when you choose a representative, you think that the person you choose is better than the one you don't vote for. So that's a kind of aristocratic act. You're thinking that some people are better than other people when you elect someone. So, that, so that's why Aristotle always said that in the election is, uh, is aristocratic in its nature. And what is democratic? <laughs> Democratic is lottery. That because the lottery, everybody is truly the same and equal. You've got an equal chance at being. So if we really were democratic, we would um, de decide by lottery. And sometimes we do that. Harvard does that <laughs> when students uh, take a lottery in order to get into a course. And that's when you, when you really consider everybody exactly equal. So, uh, so our our democracy then has an element of aristocracy in it, and that means that uh, it, it has a, a kind of elite, those people who are chosen and who get elected, and together with those who don't get elected but are still in the sort of the same pool of uh, candidates, are uh, are the higher level 
from uh, those who merely, merely vote, uh, not to speak of those who don't bother to vote. Mm. So, uh, so there is always an elite in our representative democracy, and it's always possible say, to suppose that this elite is working against you. So in that in that way, you go back. You're going back to the original notion of democracy that that you, which sort of says, I don't. Democracy means don't boss me around. You're not the boss of me, mm-hmm. uh, and and I'll show it to you by kicking you out of office when I like. Mm. It's strange to call these people elite, uh, as Trump does and others others do when they've actually been elected by the people and the people who are calling them elite haven't been. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so they say, who is more democratic? The person who won an election or the, or the person who never even uh, tried to get uh, elected? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there's always this constant possibility of, of an attack on the elite. And that, that's a feature of... Uh, of representative democracy, sort of, sort of democracy purging itself. And someone like Machiavelli, so this, is, this is an advantage of a, of a kind of government which purges itself, that is, gets rid of its, uh, its, its terrors and its uh, angers, its hatreds, its uh, imposition. Government always imposes on you, pay, it make, forces you to do things you don't want to do, uh, and above all, to pay taxes and, uh, <laughs> and uh, to uh, fight in the army if necessary. Mm-hmm. So, all, and, and these, these, so government is always uh, uh, has a bad face to it. It, it, it makes exactions on you. So, so it builds up resentment. And uh, there needs to be some way to purge this resentment. So you say, well, I can't get rid of the government altogether, which I would like, but at least I can throw these guys out and, and, uh, and give, the, give, it over, give the government over to somebody else. <clears throat> Harvey, some more 101, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, there's a Senate candidate, Republican in Pennsylvania, named Dr. Oz, Mehmet Oz. Yes. And he posted something on uh, what's called Truth Social. It's essentially Trump's Twitter. And he was celebrating certain American virtues or traits. I can't remember what they were exactly, you know, freedom, something. And he said equality. And then some of his fans were upset with this. And he deleted that posting and reposted it uh, without the word equality. And I know, personally, I know people who are skittish about the word equality. I always thought this is sort of a golden thing. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but then some of the subtler ones contrast equality with equity. Uh, and I, I, I have a pretty firm grasp, I think, on equality under the law. Equality of opportunity might be just a bit slippery, more slippery for me. Uh, I I think I believe in it. You know, everyone with a roughly equal shot, doing the best he can, going as far as his talents and ambition will take him. Mm -hmm. Would you mind doing a little 101 on equality? Right. Well, it, uh, the word certainly, as you quoted the word from, you know, from the statement on the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal right? um, by nature. Nature's God. But, um, that, uh, that could be contested. <laughs> yeah. Uh, ah. yeah. Uh, you might even say all men are created unequal. If you look yes, around, and um, you, you look around at uh, the rest of humanity, it isn't only small or individual differences, but some of these differences are huge, and um, especially intellectual differences. Mm-hmm. Compare a mind like Aristotle, or take the ancient and Hegel, 
the modern is um, far beyond our capacities and compare that to a moron. They, they're both human beings, but what a difference in, the, in their capacities, in, in the effect that they've had on the things that these two things, these two sets of people um, understand. Mm. So if you look at, uh, especially the human mind, what you find is inequality. But if you look at the human body, then, uh, well, we all have uh, gullets and, yeah. and stomachs and excretionary parts. <laughs> so uh, we're all more or less equal in that. And, and it seems that in relation to bodies, let's set aside beauty yeah. and, and set aside age, we're, there we're pretty common, we're pretty equal. Things of the body sort of hover around equality. And so uh, if, if you wanted to prove that human beings are equal, you would look at those things. And if you wanted to prove that they were unequal, you would especially look at uh, the mind, thought, um, that kind of ability. Yes. So, uh, so our declaration sort of, sort of chooses that that uh, low but solid uh, common de denominator by which to judge. And there, there's a lot of troubles with running the government by the smartest people. Yes. Uh, they're not always that smart. And they're pretentious and they can be, uh, uh, they can forget things, overlook things look at things from too lofty a point of view. So there's a lot of, you could say, more common sense in the common ordinary person. And you you capture that common sense by, by the word equality. And, um, and, and, and then if you wanted to capture the, the defects of common sense, you would think of inequality. So we've kind of made in America, and you could say in the modern age generally, we've made a decision in favor of going for this um, very hard to define, both, both equality and inequality, very hard to define hmm. um, concept, uh, but which is uh, hard to define, but th that's in a way one of its virtues because it doesn't exclude anything. Hmm. And, 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 but it is a kind of choice. It's a choice uh, to go with the ordinary guy and not with um, the philosopher, mm. Plato. Uh, and so that, that one could say to begin with. But then how do we interpret this? And then uh, uh, this word equality in our actual politics. And there, uh, while I've just been talking about uh, representation and the constitution which takes advantage of of uh, of inequalities which you know when you elect somebody it's because that person is unequal than to the it's better than the one you don't elect so and then to what you said about equality of opportunity we have a way of taking advantage of inequalities while making them seem equal. So it, um, if, if, if you use, if you go by merit, see, that seems more democratic because it doesn't give, doesn't mean that you have any um, starting position, which is ahead of other people. As, that is say, if you have an aristocratic family or you have a whole lot of money mm -hmm. or whatever other. You're the, or you're the right color. Or maybe the right sex or something yeah, like right. that none of that mm -hmm. yeah so it's it's uh, but but merit is something you can bow down to i mean somebody uh plays tennis better than you that person should be ranked better yeah in, in, the, in the tennis Sport, club sports yeah, is and, really the kingdom of you can you can live with that that you know babe ruth is better than yeah. you so yeah. 
Uh, and uh, so, Caruso sang so, better than you. That, yeah. And so equality of opportunity is a way of democracy. And you don't use the word inequality, but the result of equality of opportunity is always unequal. Mm -hmm. And so people then say, well, this is unfair and that's inequitable. And they use the word equity, and that's and they but by what they mean by that is equalizing inequalities. Mm -hmm. Whereas equality points to something that already exists is a kind of fact. I think that's what the Declaration of Independence means by the equality that we have. Um, equity in this new way, progressive way, um, means uh, um, equalizing what is unequal. So everybody should end up equal rather than just beginning equal. And that, uh, of course, is a uh, 100% attack on equality of opportunity, so, then, because opportunity turns out to mean uh, <laughs> having the same say, as somebody else. So equality that in that way means sameness. Mm -hmm. I'm not equal to you until I'm the same as you. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, human beings don't seem to be constructed that way. And if you want to make them that way, it seems that you have to use a whole lot of coercion. Hmm. And uh, and uh, unpersuasive persuasion, which you might call propaganda. Uh, Harvey, I'm going to hit you with another topic, um, one that you know well. Uh, you wrote a sterling book on manliness <laughs> with exactly that title, manliness. Mm -hmm. And your topic has been in the air. There've been lots of articles recently on this subject, right. including by me, uh -huh. uh, the, the, the chairman of the Claremont Institute uh, said at some gala, mm -hmm. that Donald Trump is a manly man. Mm -hmm. uh, Dick Cheney cut an ad for his daughter, Liz in Wyoming saying a real man wouldn't lie to his supporters. Mm -hmm. And that led some of us to dwell on, you know, real, what is manhood? Yeah. And so you're, <laughs> one of your subjects is the, one of the topics of the hour. And uh, it seems to me that there's a great deal of confusion on what makes a man. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, I wish there were more, uh, more sales for my book than there are. But you're right. It does seem to be uh, in the news. Uh, yeah, it is a, a kind of permanent uh, concern. I tried to address that. So in that, um, I use the word manliness rather than manhood, or also rather than masculinity, mm. because uh, I wanted to make um, manliness uh, point to what people praise uh, in a man, that he's a manly man. Not all men are manly from this point of view. Some don't quite measure up. And some uh, have other virtues, but uh, they don't have the virtue of manliness, which I define as willingness to take a risk, to take charge in a, in a risky situation thing, where there's danger or where there's competition or a kind of contestation where uh, you have to assert yourself in order to make people notice you and then you're able to take charge of this of this uh, whatever trouble is uh, exists so that's a certain kind of person and there's some women like that and so i admit that like margaret thatcher was my example in fact in my book, uh, the first example I give of manliness is her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so in some women, but it prevails much more in men. But still, on the whole, it's uh, not a not a majority of men. So it's connected to to traits which are masculine, but it isn't the same thing as masculine. Mm -hmm. um, and manhood is somewhere in between masculine and manly manhood is sort of, sort of well you're 21 <laughs> <laughs> of, 
something like that. Mm. So you're, you know, you're you're old enough to know that that kind of uh, maturity, a certain maturity. Um, but uh, masculinity, yeah, so I mean, doesn't have this sort of uh, positive uh, valuation that manly has. And in fact, you can speak of toxic, toxic masculinity. And that's uh, men who go out of their way to make trouble and be nasty. And there are such men. Mm. <laughs> and they're a great problem in human life. And it's, it turns out that the only real effective response to them is other men who take them on and meet them and take them down like Churchill and Hitler. That would be sort of an example right at the top. Or let's bring in FDR too, FDR and Churchill versus Hitler and Stalin. So, um, yeah, so, so uh, manliness is some, is some praiseworthy thing. But then the question is, how far does that go? And I try to take it up even to the top, namely uh, uh, philosopher. But a philosopher takes the risk of, of questioning all the views which we hold most dear and precious. So a philosopher would take up whether democracy is a good thing or not. Hardly any academic does that. Hardly any, hardly any at all. They compare democracy with some vicious authoritarian regime. Mm -hmm. They don't uh, compare it to some aristocratic type of regime that might not be so vicious, and that would be more of a real uh, competitor for democracy. So, uh, that, so that in that sense, the philosopher is the highest form of manliness. But in the other, in the, in the sort of common day, ordinary sense, uh, the philosopher isn't interested in the battles that, and um, the contests that manly men like, football games and politics and, <laughs> and competitive situations. Mm. And uh, so, Manliness is, uh, has this kind of double ambivalent character of being above and also being within our ordinary lives. Harvey, um, I want to hit you with another subject, which is age old. Maybe you can spend a couple of minutes on it. And we're always debating. We've done so in recent days with this student debt forgiveness. But um, the big question is, what is higher education? What is its purpose? And here people say, well, college ought to prepare you for life and get you a job. Those things are, are great, true, but uh, I, there's nothing wrong with knowledge, right? With being acquainted with the great works of literature and a little philosophy or a lot of philosophy, just because it en enriches life, makes it sweeter. The The you know, learning stuff, if I may put it that way, is not a bad thing if you can afford it. <laughs> money and the time. And I, I feel more and more defensive of education for its own sake. Well, what will it do yeah. for you? Well, it will acquaint you with things you weren't acquainted with before. And that yeah. makes life sweeter if you are inclined that way. And if you're not, fine with me. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I agree with that very much. I think uh, that colleges should be about cultivating the mind. And that it shouldn't be about preparing you for a profession or a career. So uh, it shouldn't be like graduate school, or law school, medical school. Hmm. Um, obviously, some, some courses you would have to take, um, mathematics, sure. Sure. to prepare but um, uh, yes, you, you should become acquainted with the greatness of human accomplishments. Mm -hmm. You should take a course in music, the history of music, so you can tell the, the difference between Mozart and Beethoven as soon as you hear it, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. 
-hmm. You should take a course in the history of art. So you know, what, what is a column? Then what is the capital to a column? What mm -hmm. are the three kinds of what And you look at it, you know mm -hmm. where this, what this is, and you can appreciate what you're seeing. Um, and uh, you should take great works of literature and great works of philosophy. The, so I, you know, what are to, all, all together called the great books. So those are books which we still read. Otherwise, you spend your life or your college life looking at books which will be superseded 10 years after you leave college, at least, if not sooner. So the course, the books I teach in my courses have been with us for 2,400 years or, or, <laughs> or not quite that long, 500 years, case of Machiavelli. So, and, my, and they deserve to be, and they will continue to be as long as our, our civilization um, survives. So if you want to be part of that, if you want to be part of this, of, of, the, of, of the great accomplishments of humanity, get your sense of them. Of, of, of course, they're going, most of them are going to be beyond you. We're not um, Botticelli or Uccello, mm -hmm. any great artists, and stuff, things like that, uh, or Mozart, Bach, no. Uh, but we can, we can listen and appreciate and learn something from them and uh, keep them going. Get a sense of responsibility for uh, keeping this alive. And this is uh, a good deal more valuable than, than GDP. <laughs> it's, good, it's good to be uh, wealthy and prosperous. I mean, our country is really immensely prosperous. And, some, and it's, it's really striking that we've been able to make it so, especially again, more so than our, our competitors in Europe and Japan, Germany. They, they, we've, um, we, we've got a much more productive system of getting the value out of, um, out of, out of human talent. Is, is that owing at least in part to our openness, do you think? Yes, I think it is, yeah. And to our freedom, which also makes us kind of rowdy. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Guns and riots and and things like that, um, and uh, and and a certain democratic arrogance, yeah. swaggering that Americans do. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, but, uh, but, yeah, uh, so, but we. It's that's the bad side of our good side. Yes, well put. Well, here toward the end, I have a, a couple of others for you, uh, both uh, philosophical and personal. I, uh, I think I might have asked you this once. Uh, I, over the years, I've, I've talked off and on with Marilyn Horn in podcasts and the great singer. And I said to her once, I'm certainly not going to ask you who your favorite composers are. You know, our tastes shift and we appreciate different people, maybe more in different periods or even on different days. Depends on how we got out of bed. And I said to her, anyone you're feeling especially close to now? That's where I put it, because you know, it doesn't commit someone to some all time fit. You know, is there anyone you're feeling especially close to now? She said, yes, Brahms. She said, I like listening to him. I like teaching him. I like singing him. Uh, she said, he makes you feel good. There's a certain warmth and consolation about Brahms. I'm not going to ask you for your favorite thinkers, but what I want to know is, is there a thinker lately you've been feeling close to or appreciating anew, or maybe for the first time, something like that? Hmm. Well, the, the philosopher that I've spent most of my career on is Machiavelli. So... He was a neat guy. Would you like to meet him, Harvey? And yes, of course. I serve up some questions to him. I, you two yeah. would get along like a house of fire. Yeah, no, I, as if I were his equal. No, uh, I mean, obviously, I'm. I'm. Uh, there's another term that's used to describe me besides conservative, and that's Straussian. Yes. So I, I would mention the name of Leo Strauss as someone who continues to instruct me and amaze me. Mm. 
Well, I um, I was thinking about the history of this little program I do, and uh, one of our, uh, I think of two Yaleys, a fairly recent guest was uh, Stephen Smith. He said, um, he gave me four names that meant a lot to him. Uh, I have it written down here. Uh, Berlin, Oakshot, Strauss, and Aron, Raymond Aron. And uh, I also spoke with John Hare, a, a different kind of philosopher. I said, do you have a personal pantheon? And I hesitated to ask this. And he did not hesitate. He said, yes. And here it is. And he said, I have it written down here. Aristotle, Duns Scotus, Kant. And then these are his words. This is a direct quote. My father, whose voice I hear all the time in my ear. Hmm. If I have Mansfield here, so I'm not going to construct a Mansfieldian pantheon. But oh. I would think one or two of the Greeks, your friend Machiavelli, your friend Tocqueville, your friend Strauss, do you want to fill this in instead of me putting names, no, words like, in your mouth? No, I like what you said. Aristotle, yes. yes. <laughs> and um, Machiavelli and Tocqueville and Strauss, yes. Those are four for you. Harvey, is Aristotle the, the Greek you most esteem, you would say? Yes, uh, I guess so for his all-around comprehensive um, vision and, and understanding. He founded so many sciences, but also especially for his connection to what is ordinary and, and democratic. He begins, um, his, his, his uh, notions are, are, are taken from what most people think. What most people think is not uh, correct, but it has some truth in it. And he goes after that truth instead of uh, uh, vaulting above it. Mm -hmm. So this is a very common distinction that's made between Aristotle and Plato. Mm -hmm. And uh, Plato would be his, uh, Aristotle's rival, his friend, mm -hmm. his friend whom he criticizes. But he's, as he says, he loves the truth more than he loves his friend. So he disagrees with Plato. And so, so one, one should uh, sort of, make um, make a meal, make an intellectual meal of the difference between Plato and Aristotle. And then Machiavelli, the great opponent of, of Aristotle and of Aristotle's uh, consequence, which he thought to be Christianity. And then Tocqueville, which was, I think, uh, the best expert on today, on, on our democracy today. And uh, Strauss, who tried to has tried to recover philosophy in its original meaning. Harvey, is there is there one thing people can read to get the nub of what you think? Or is there a kind of one-stop shopping or summa? Or will they have to just dip into various books and papers, which would be fine? Of mine, you mean? Yes. Um. Yeah, if, if you wanted to do one thing, it would be uh, the lecture I gave us, the Jefferson lecture mm. in 2007. Um, Easily Googleable. Yeah, on understanding politics. And it was published in First Things. Mm -hmm. so that's, uh, it's on um, the humanities, why politics is closer to the humanities than to the natural sciences. And so it's about the nature of politics and the nature of the humanities. So I think that, and that, that would show my interests and, and such as they are my talents. That would be a good start, put it that way. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Jay Nordlinger with the Q&A program, which is produced by Madeline Osborne. The sponsor of this podcast is X-Chair Harvey Mansfield, these students you have, these new students coming up next week or so, I I, I, I was going to say I envy them, but that wouldn't be true. And I'm, I'm not big on envy. I'm just so pleased for them. I'm really pleased for them. They're going to have a wonderful experience. And I hope you will, too, in, in this adventure of teaching. 
and uh, uh, thank you so much for our conversation. It's been a pleasure. Good to see you. So long, everybody. Until next time. Bye-bye. Join the conversation.